Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We're pleased to have real estate private equity veteran, Remy Raisner with us today. Mr. Raisner is the founder and the CEO of the Raisner Group, which is a private real estate investment firm head headquartered here in New York City. The Raisner Group's mission is to raise living standards, deliver top-level risk-adjusted returns to investors, create opportunities it invests to, and contribute to the greater good of society. Under Mr. Raisner's leadership, the Raisner Group has raised capital domestically and internationally since 2009. It has been active in non-performing notes and fee-simple transactions, and focuses primarily on value-add, residential, and mixed-use real estate investments in New York City. Most of the firm's acquisitions have taken place in outer boroughs with an emphasis in the emerging Brooklyn markets of Bushwick, Bed-Stuy, and Prospect Leffert Gardens. After working as an equity trader in New York, Mr. Raisner worked for a real estate investment firm in Argentina, where he focused on Latin American acquisitions. And Mr. Raisner holds a bachelor's degree from Farley Dickinson University and an MBA from Columbia Business School. And prior to his career in business, he played professional basketball. In conjunction with being an entrepreneur, Remy has been a leading voice of the real estate industry. He's a contributor to numerous international and national media outfit, outlets. And he's a frequent speaker at universities and conferences. His articles have been featured in publications including Forbes, HuffPost, Observer, Le Monde, and Philadelphia Inquirer. He's also been published by think tanks such as the Berggren Institute, the World Economic Forum, and the Urban Land Institute. His opinion pieces are often touch on urbanism and real estate on one hand and foreign affairs on the other, offering perspectives at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. Remy, thank you so much for coming on today to share your experience. It's greatly appreciated. Okay, thank you, John. Thanks for the great introduction, and it's great to have you here. Of course. So before we talk business, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Um, so where are you from, and why did you get into the industry? Sure. So I grew up in Paris, France, and uh, so I was born and raised there from a very international family. My, my mother had, uh, was raised in California, and she had a half French, half Eastern European background. Uh, from the country of Serbia, okay. and my father was born in Germany and was uh, was uh, really German, and then migrated to France when he was a kid, but stayed somewhat German uh, throughout his life. So I was born uh, where they both migrated, and uh, I stayed there until I was 17. Uh, upon that, I was in sports early on in my life in basketball. I went to the north of France for two years, where I, I signed my first professional contract, stayed there, and then moved to the U.S., which is something I wanted to had to to do for I had wanted to do for a long time and ended up in the tri-state area, by the way, of Texas for six months, and then New Jersey and New York City. Very nice, that's that's a very cool story. Um, so I like to ask this question to kind of gauge um, where your business skills started. So if you had to think back to your earliest sales experience, the first time you remember selling something, what comes to mind? The first time I, I remember selling something was uh, anecdotally, uh, um, I guess anecdotally interesting. Uh, when I was about uh, 15 years old, I, I used to come to the U.S. on basketball camps. And uh, it was in the 90s at the time. You know, you didn't have internet. You didn't right. have uh, all the communication you have today. Nor ways to buy or sell things. And um, I remember I was, in, uh, I was going to Texas a lot at the time. And I, uh, I found a store that at the time was called Stephen Berry's. You might have heard of it. Yeah. It was big at some point in New York City as well. And they used to sell these, uh, these jackets, you know, NCAA jackets, uh, $9. And it was... Uh, University of North Carolina, it was official gear from right. the NCAA or University of Michigan, whatever, stuff that was known in Europe. They were selling there for nine bucks. And, uh, and in France, it would have easily been uh, 150 uh, euros at oh, the wow. time, or you know, it was francs at the time, but the right. equivalent would, would be 150, $160. And, and I ended up buying a batch, bringing that to Paris. 
And one time I went out and, you know, I was a basketball player. So my, my, one of my friends was a bouncer at a hot night club. Right. We went there. He started buying one. His friends bought, bought others. Ended up selling out back of the car truck wow. for, for like, you know, in, in two hours I was sold out of 10, in two 10 hours. jackets, made a huge pro rich profit. It was, it was a, wow, that's it was a <laughs> funny time. It picked my, my curiosity in business. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So how, how important have your, have your sales skills been throughout your commercial real estate career? Um, and would you say this is what kind of set you apart from the competition? Look, uh, I think it's important for everybody in every uh, possible uh, profession. Yeah. Uh, the, once I was told that uh, sales are the ultimate skill, I think it's true. But that said, you know, so it's important for me. But I, I don't see myself necessarily as a salesman right. when I when I do, right. when I do business, um, because we're involved in investments. And uh, you know, it, 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 you, you one side of the business is selling what you do; the other side is really uh, making a judgment call, exactly. on, uh, you know, with with your capital or others' capital. And and I prefer many times to actually undersell it, and 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 the way. Uh, for us to do it is uh, ideally to undersell it, exceed expectations, and, and, and develop long-lasting relationships. Right. So, sales skills are important for everybody. Uh, that said, you know I don't want to put too much emphasis right. it's not on it in the context of our business. But uh, right, that's hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, um, and so you decided to get your MBA at Columbia in uh, 2007. So, what what prompted you to make this decision? And looking back, do you think it was worth it? So yes, absolutely worth it. Uh, you're going to the same school, so yeah. I hope you feel the same way. I'm, yeah. I'm very happy with Columbia uh, Business School or Columbia University overall. I'm still involved today quite much. Uh, I, I made that decision out of uh, circumstances, you know. So it's funny because uh, I, you know, I, my, my 20s were a combination of failures. You know, right. I'm I'm, uh, I'm 41 now. The, my 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 the past decade for me was better than my 20s. My 20s were good too, but I had a, just a combination of failure failures. So I stopped playing professional sports when I was 23. I had an injury, I had no plan B. You know, I, I, I barely had a plan A. I, mean, I had a strong plan A, but I had no 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 fallback outside of sports. Right. Uh, and eventually, I stopped my career. I and I ended up uh, going on Wall Street, uh, out of uh, networking and talking to people and finding good opportunity, mm -hmm. uh, and also out of just being in New York City. And and uh, and it was a quick transition. It was a great transition. I did not expect to to um, pivot uh, as strong as I did. Right. Uh, but that's it. On Wall Street, I worked for a hedge fund as a trader uh, that uh, basically slowly ended up uh, being eaten out by the uh, high frequency traders that at the time were starting on Wall Street and really gaining traction. And long story short, I made a lot of money to begin with and then I lost everything. And I stayed two years there. Right. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I thought I wanted to do something a little bit more uh, analytical and develop uh, further business skills. So, you know, I, I, I remember it was September, I think... Uh, uh, 2006, and I made it. I had a bad trade. I, I lost pretty much all my PNL. My efforts went to the uh, uh, the trash can, and mm. uh, I decided, listen, it, you know, it's a window for me to apply to Columbia Business School. I always, I always knew of Columbia. It was my number one choice. I wanted to stay in New York City. And had a program starting in January. I pivoted right away. I was able right. to pull an application, talk to a few folks that I had met uh, through sports actually that ended up recommending me. And I think I was the very last person to be admitted. At Columbia Business School at the time, I was waitlisted, right. and I think in December I was accepted to to start in January. Okay, so it was very very last minute, and uh, and and that was a good that was a good choice for me. I was very happy with the what I learned, whom I met, and it just gave me more confidence. Uh, and and um, it was important for me to do well in a, in a strong academic setting. I didn't come from the um, I didn't come from uh, from a, you know the schools I, I had attended right. were really focused on sports, not academia. There were good schools too. I'm very happy with them, but Columbia is Columbia. The business school is the business school. Uh, so 
you know, to make the right. answer short, I was happy with it. And that's how I, I, great. I joined it. Yeah. And did, did you always, throughout this MBA, did you always want to go into real estate? Or were you kind of broad, uh, studying broad business and kind of narrowing down what you want to do within that? So for me, I guess it's a little more unusual. Uh, I came in and I thought I was going to go back to the markets just with right. more understanding of the markets and finance and a different style of trading and a more long lasting uh, right. uh, mentality. Um, and then as a, you know, the MBA pro process is, a, is, you know, especially the first year, you get educated a lot, you meet people, you network, you learn about different careers, what people do, you have all these opportunities thrown at you, it's fantastic. So as I learned, I, I thought actually maybe other careers or slightly different careers would make more sense right. for me. And I was not I was not interested right away in real estate. I thought in the long term I want to be in real estate private equity, uh, and I had this broad idea that uh, I was going to work for a fund, you know, and be be a partner at a fund, and you know, do something like that. And the, the first step was to go into M and A, uh, investment banking, right. very different than trading. Yeah, much longer hours, much more time on spreadsheet, much less, uh, uh, to some degree, much less intensity. Even right. though it's the wrong way to say it. Uh, so I was, uh, I, I basically, I signed up for that career after I got educated uh, about it and ended up receiving a bunch of offers to, to do real estate um, investment banking, to be right. part of the real estate investment banking group uh, uh, of Bosch Bracket firms mm -hmm. and accept an offer. Uh, and, you know, everything was good. I decided to go to Argentina for my last business school semester. Right. And then, the, the, you know, the, the world crumbled. Right. Uh, it was the great financial crisis. Uh, first, uh, Bear Stearns went down. Then you know, there were problems with the hedge fund at uh, the French bank BNP Paribas. Right. Uh, and then the whole, you know, the whole street collapsed, Wall Street. And my uh, my job offer collapsed with that. So, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, I was told to basically, uh, I was I was I was being uh, talked to delaying the start of my uh, post MBA career by a year. Right. Uh, and eventually the conversation was like, listen, you know, you can't start. We don't have, uh, we're firing people and, right. and forget it. And then I try to look for a job. It's basically impossible. And I, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have much money. I didn't have a setup in here. I didn't have a visa to stay right. in the country. Uh, so after sending a, a lot of resumes, hundreds, if not thousands, a lot, right. I decided to just uh, take the, the, my destiny in my own hands. And I always had this idea that at some point I was going to be an entrepreneur. Right. And I always had this broad idea I was going to own buildings. Uh, and I, I didn't know how to set that up, but I ended up setting up an LLC that got me to stay in the country. I got the, I got um, through an immigration uh, path at the time. Right, I got yeah. I got a, a visa through that, and then eventually I started learning about the real estate business. So I learned the hard way. It took me a long time to 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 be profitable, but eventually that's how I fell into it. That's awesome. That's great. Um, and how does uh, how does real estate private equity in Argentina differ from real estate private equity in the U.S.? Uh, it differs by a lot. Uh, if you want to reduce it to a single difference, which is much more, much too much uh, reductive, it would be that there's no banking system. Everything right. is cash because of the history of the country and yep. uh, the economics, uh, the economic history of the country yep. and inflation and whatnot. Uh, that said, listen, I only worked six months in Argentina. I stayed for school uh, for a semester, then stayed there because of the, the financial crisis. Right. And, uh, you know, so my perspectives are not as extensive as New York City, but it's got very it. different. Yeah, got it. And um, how did you learn the skills associated with being a leader? Is it something you've always had or is it something you developed over time? I would say probably both. Um, you know, I've, I've, I, guess, uh, I guess genetically speaking, we've had a lot of entrepreneurs in my family right. or just people that uh, nobody that I can recall has really worked in the corporate world in my, in my family. We've had people starting, uh, you know, any sort of career from sports to business to musical career to cultural uh, things. 
Uh, and uh, so I guess some part is genetics and the other part is really probably fostering that from an early age. Right. My father uh, pushed me to go the direction I wanted to, uh, potentially to lead uh, teams of people and whatnot. And then sports was a big uh, um, was a big thing for me, obviously, and I developed a lot of uh, uh, leadership skills, I guess, through mm -hmm. that. And I was many times captains, uh, captain of basketball teams or you know, organizing uh, organizing um, some sort of um, uh, activity or right. whatnot, and um, I learned I learned uh, more and more leaderships uh, through that as time went by. Okay, very interesting. And if you were to boil it down, what would you say makes a good leader and a good principal? You know, for me, it's really you know leading by example. Right. You know, at the end of the day, in the ideal world, you don't have to tell people anything. You just set the rhythm for a for a, for a company or for any organization or group. Right. You do what you need to do. You lead by example. Your work ethic shows. Your smart shows. Your smart show, and you know people just uh, um, follow you in that uh, direction. Right, hundred percent. And and as far as like negotiations, how do you position yourself to be not necessarily in the advantage, but to be respected in a negotiation where you can kind of make it good for both parties? You know, you, you, you gave the answer I was going to give. I think, I think it's important to really try uh, to approach negotiation, at least the way I look at it, in a way that it's always a win-win situation. Right. There has to be a way that it's a win-win situation. Right. If you don't get there, it's because of lack of information on right. how the other party thinks or whatnot. But that's the goal. That's how I approach negotiation. So, so you think a good negotiator can kind of understand what the other person wants very quickly and deliver that to them very quickly as well? No, 100%. That's the ultimate uh, uh, skill. Right. Definitely. Um, so what personality traits and what skill sets should, should young people, um, let's say they're in high school, uh, work on to prepare themselves for a career in real estate, private equity in the future? I would say, uh, have perseverance. Right. It's uh, really necessary in real estate. Uh, it's not an easy business. It's very right. rewarding and, you know, perseverance is needed in every sorts of career, uh, regardless. Right. So perseverance and, and specifically for real estate, the long-term mindset, in my opinion, it's a, it's a bit slower moving business than let's say tech or other, other businesses. Yeah. Uh, you need a longer mindset and a vision of where you're going to be, you know, next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, if you can approach your career early on with right. this mindset, uh, at least you can be confident in, and have a map in your mind of where you're going to be going and, and what, uh, uh, the path should look like and, and then execute. Right. hundred percent. And um, what's what skill set makes somebody succeed in real estate, private equity? Is it sales? Is it vision? Is it strong analytical skills? Or is it a mix of everything? It's a mix of everything. I told you my opinion on sales. I try, right. try you know, especially financial businesses, private equity businesses. I think you, you, you have to sell things, but you have to, at least the way we do it, I'd rather, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm, my style is to present bad news before good news, especially right. when we oversee investments. We try, to, obviously, not to have too many bad news, uh, but things happen. And uh, that's how we deal with them. And the good news take care of themselves. Uh, what you mentioned, you know, is the, the mix of these uh, skills uh, right. is what matters. And then, you know, you have to be creative. You have to be, uh, um, you know, opportunistic in the sense that you have to be able to to uh, to see new markets, new opportunities right. that uh, open up. And you have to have both the experience that you develop uh, at some point and also the, the confidence in yourself and or or, or your um, mentality and your uh, mindset to be able to act on what you spot. Right. Many times you can spot opportunities but not act on them. Right. And that happened to me a lot. And then I realized the opportunities were big. So I try to, I try to 100%. in the future think differently about that. Okay, very interesting. And um, what, is your, what is your primary focus 
in our real estate private equity? How how would your why why is your primary primary focus in real estate private equity? How would your career look different if it was a public REIT? Uh, uh, but meaning, if we were if we own and started a public REIT, right. or, or if I was working for a public REIT and coming through the ranks, or um, if you owned and operated a public REIT. You know, I mean, the big the big picture might not be that different. You know, the big picture might be, uh, you know, we're focused. I, I love Brooklyn. You know, I've been right. I've been focused on Brooklyn a lot, specifically uh, the areas you mentioned. Yep. Uh, so we, you know, as a public company, can you know can do that. Uh, you have to report a lot more to people, uh, investors, analysts. It's more quarter by quarter. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more uh, uh, public in the sense that you you know you're in the public eye. You 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 don't have the luxury of. Uh, uh, or sometimes the luxury of a long-term vision. Right. So that would be the main difference. Okay, yeah. And um, when you break down successful underwriting to its essentials, um, what are the major points you kind of dial into to really understand a deal to its core? Look, uh, first of all, uh, you know, I mean, in, in terms of um, quantifiable metrics, the, the way we do business is we, we underwrite deals, we want to buy below market value. Right. Uh, and then we want to add value. And then we want to ideally buy below replacement cost. Mm -hmm. If we can check these boxes, you know, usually, uh, you know, we, 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 we give ourselves a chance to do well. And uh, we look at the downside first. How do we limit the downside? How do right. we limit any bad news? How do we limit any, any issue, any delay? And then, the, and then the upside takes care of itself. Understood. You know? Got it. Um, and how can, how can limited partners ensure that sponsors' interests are aligned with their own interests as limited partners? You know, to, to some degree, uh, the private equity structure with uh, with um, the, the majority of the the GP, the sponsor of the right. deal, the person that puts the deal together, the majority of his uh, 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 take take home uh, or pay is you know backended. It's, yep. it's through what we call the promote, which is a, a proportional uh, share of the profit, mm -hmm. but disproportional for that regard. But if the deal does well, the, the sponsor does uh, uh, very well. Right. You know, in itself, it's an incentive for for uh, LPs to be. Um, for LP capital and GP capital or, or behaviors to be aligned, right. uh, we're not big. We're not big believers in high fees or whatnot. Uh, I think it's the you know, especially for uh, for investors that we know well, we're, we're happy to lower our fees in general or be lower than the industry, right. yeah, yeah. so that uh, they feel good about doing business. Uh, you know, we keep, we need to keep the lights on, obviously, but this is not as a sponsor where you make uh, uh, your your money again. Yep. It's more more um, on the back end, right? Uh, and outside of that, you know, just, uh, you know, I think you align yourself best as an LP if you really know who you're getting uh, right. um, uh, into a deal with and if you really understand how they think, have extensive due diligence and conversation with them and, and check track records and whatnot. Right. So you think, do you think reputation is important for these sponsors? How do you evaluate some of a sponsor's reputation? What are the ways you would go about uh, checking their reputation? I mean, look, I, I don't. I mean, I, I can tell you I don't check out a lot of sponsors' reputations because we're sponsors, of right. course, but, but it goes both ways. We right. check RLP's reputation. It's important that, uh, I mean, first of all, you want to do business with somebody who's honest. It's, it's, uh, you know, yeah. it's a prerequisite uh, for any conversation. Uh, then secondly, you know, you, usually you have been in the real estate business for over 10 years, 13 now, usually have common contacts, especially through the business schools or the real estate world. You know, people you've done business with right. many times, it's, it's easy to check who knows who with LinkedIn or word of mouth. Uh, and then again, having conversation, making sure that uh, both parties understand uh, um, their view on the market, on the deal, you know, what, what they want to do, what, what the time frame is and things of that nature. Okay, understood. And um, how does a real estate entrepreneur attract and partner with institutional capital? 
you know, I, I mean, there's, there, there's 20,000 ways. There are people that organize that. There are people that have direct contacts. There right. are people that have uh, friends in, 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 uh, in, you know, family offices or institutional uh, uh, investors' um, uh, outfits and whatnot. So, uh, so many, many ways. We've been approached by such investors at conferences uh, right. sometimes when uh, I spoke there or, or, my, um, or, or some of the people that work with me were uh, in attendance. Uh, so th th there are many ways, and sometimes investment banks also uh, uh, do their job and you know try right. to try to organize a deal or joint venture and and uh, and um, therefore uh, introduce parties to each other. Okay. Many many ways. Yeah. Okay. And um, do you think it's important to position yourself as like an industry leader in a specific property type or asset class to show these institutional investors that you're the right person for this uh, investment? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, we, for me, the rusted business is a niche business. Right. Uh, I was uh, lucky to find one. Uh, you know, we buy uh, middle sized and small buildings in Brooklyn, which is, it, it's, you know, it's the place where you have room for entrepreneurs. It's not right. yet, uh, you don't have a lot of organized capital yet. It's frontier. It's just becoming institutionalized. So that's the, that's the next area of opportunity. Right. Uh, the city's growing. Urbanism is, you know, being revived now after COVID. But regardless, the last 20 years, America has been, has seen a huge uh, urban um, uh, moving wave. Right. So, uh, so, yeah, I think finding a niche, you know, number one, that's how you build an expertise. Number two, that's how you differentiate yourself from others. And therefore, that's how you can attract the right uh, partner or just uh, generally speaking, you know, develop. Right. Interesting. And how did you find your niche? What, what, how did that come about? So, you know, out of, uh, out of luck and then also out of talking to a lot of people and right. uh, out of uh, studying what's happening in New York City and also out of being a longtime New Yorker. I'm a 20-year New Yorker. Right. Now, uh, I moved to the city uh, 2005. I really moved in, into the area. I was coming to Manhattan and the city a lot since 2002. Right. Um, so I, I knew where the population was kind of uh, trending towards. And uh, I remember networking a lot with the alums of my business school right. and other people I could meet anywhere at conferences and whatnot. In the last crisis, things were slower. It was easier to network with people. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I repeatedly heard, you know, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, and and you know, Bushwick and, and things of that nature. Eventually, I was able to get involved, and it piqued right. my curiosity that there was so much buzzword about it. So, through the specific knowledge, through these conversations that you've had, you kind of picked up on a pattern, and you decided to capitalize on that pattern. Exactly, and and then you know, I I, I had definitely boots on the ground, so to speak. I right. uh, you know, I was in these areas. I was trying to get a feel for what they look like, who's involved. I was speaking with brokers there. I had friends that started moving there. I was surprised. I you know, I went to their parties. I went to see what it's like to live there. Right. I talked to the people that, that you know that were moving into these areas to understand what they wanted, why mm -hmm. they were moving there, uh, and I you know I slowly I, w I was able to paint a picture of uh, what could happen in the future, and it did happen. So right. The area has uh, exploded. Hundred percent, yeah. And um, talking strategy, uh, what approach do you prefer? Is it the operational value creation approach or the capitalized value creation, or both? Mix what do you both. mean by the capitalized value creation? Um, so like value add, like uh, renovating the buildings or um, Kind of increasing the value of the building by through renovation or whatever it is by um, adding instead of like anything not operational. Okay. Look, we do a lot of. Uh, I mean, it's both. Uh, at the end of the day, we do a lot of uh, value add through uh, renovation, uh, but uh, they, they vary in scope. You know, you go from very light uh, touch up, almost just turnover, right. to have your gut rehabs. We don't build anything ground up. That's not what we do. Uh, but but for us, the real advantage, I believe, is to be in one area or, or, or let's say, three areas, Bushwick, Bed-Stuy, 
Prospect Lefferts Garden and to really know Brooklyn right. and to really know the people, to really be able to spot things that others don't. You know, we can see a deal. We've bought deals that were off the market. Right. And we've bought, de bought deals that were on the market that just people were looking a different way than us. And perhaps we had a building close by or we had some sort of information that made us uh, see, see things and, and see potential that uh, mm -hmm. the marketplace wasn't seeing. And, uh, and you know, we, we've bought buildings we, we, we barely touched. They were just very cheap and, and ripe for just, you know, you know, turning around the uh, leases or things of that nature. Right. Or we've bought buildings that were just, uh, um, you know, uninhabitable and happily uh, rehabbed them and brought out the architecture, brought out the historical uh, uh, facade and things like that and revived them. And then that's very pleasant. Interesting. Too. And so do you think a lot of the value that you create um, comes from like being boots on the ground, being in the neighborhood, knowing all the big players in that specific neighborhood, like for example, Bushwick, knowing all the big brokers, knowing kind of having good relationships with everyone so that you can have a deal before everybody else gets it. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And, and not only that, but you have, uh, you know, you, you, you get to know the local suppliers right. or local property managers. So, you, you, you know, you get you better, you source better supplies. If you do right. volume business, you source better pricing. Uh, you know, with brokers, you find out, you know, bro brokerage is the very unequal you know you find out who's best leasing your apartment yeah uh, things of that nature okay yeah and so i'm curious at what point did you decide to start your own company the raisner group and what gave you the confidence to like go out on your own uh you know i started uh in 2008 when i when my job offer right, vanished yeah. and i couldn't find uh, another job and i had to put food on the table literally speaking yeah uh but i always knew I, I had this in me i always knew at some point i was going to be a, an entrepreneur having a company and, and spe specifically being a, an immigrant in this country right. i think you know it's part of the experience and the mindset to to do this um so you know hopefully that answers your question and as far as knowing what you're doing you kind of just started and you learned as I you just went. started i learned along the way i, right. I thought i thought i knew things and right. i did not know anything and i had to actually earn learn a lot of things right uh you know, I, I bought my first, uh, I visited my first building to buy, you know, I, and, I, you know, I was coming out of business school. I was 20, uh, I was 26, actually, when I came out. I thought it was a good idea to dress up in a suit and look serious. And I just right. looked like somebody who wasn't from the business at all, you know. So, right. so uh, yeah, I, I had to unlearn a lot of things before I learned. And I learned everything by doing. And, uh, you know, it took me about, uh, so I started the company. Uh, it took me a few months of research uh, before starting the company. I read about maybe 50 real estate books, anything I could get my hands on. I spent a lot of time in the library training myself. Uh, and like I said, talking to people. So I had right. you know, hundreds of conversations. Then I set up the company. It took me a year to make my first deal. I, I, never, you know, I thought I would set up a company by a building and you know, within three months, you know, fix up a few things and, cash flow and, and have money. It didn't happen right. this way. And uh, it took me a year to put the first deal together. I thought I was going to buy a building. I ended up buying defaulted notes. Mm -hmm. It's a very different product yep. and very different uh, everything. And then it took me three years to, for the company to make my first dollar. So, you know, one year to make the first deal. Right. And another two years before the, I got the first dollar. So it was like it was like crossing the desert. But, right. uh, but, but in hindsight, that's when, you, that's when it was really... Uh, that's when it was really beneficial to me because, uh, first of all, it humbled me a lot and it yep. gave me, put me in the right mindset. And uh, that's that's when, you know, many times in life you learn the most about yourself when you don't know that you're learning about yep. yourself. And uh, it's very difficult, but uh, it was very rewarding. So I'm, very, I'm very happy it happened this way, you know. Okay, and, cool. and I'm very happy it happened early in my life and career as opposed to later on, which is, you know, uh, right. gives you less time to develop. Definitely. And do you think as a real estate entrepreneur, the more you kind of go along, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't really know anything? 
Well, hopefully at some point you know a little bit, but uh, but listen, yeah, it's important to have a mindset that's a, that's a growth mindset, that's a mindset where you can absorb information, right. be open to it, right? Uh, because information comes from very unexpected sources, yeah. you know. Uh, it could be a tenant complaint uh, if 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 unfortunately you have that once in a while, or it could be a you know a conversation with a broker or a conversation at the or just a, you know a soundbite at the local uh, bodega or whatnot. Right. You see something happening in a neighborhood and you pick on it and it gives you insights that you cannot read on in the papers right. or whatnot. And you know, especially uh, uh, I came into the business. Uh, I started the company. I was 26, and I you know I, I didn't have much experience. I didn't know how to pick up on these things. And over time, I picked up on these right. things, and that little created a, um, a good basis for uh, having information that is really information that is really. Uh, um, I want to say cutting edge in the sense that it's really uh, specific uh, specific yeah. uh, to certain areas and what's going on in our portfolio and whatnot. Okay, yeah. And um, let's say someone just graduated college, right? Would you recommend that they go to a big shop like JLL or CBRE and kind of get like these relationships and this like uh, propelling their career forward? Or would you recommend that they start just like you did, just kind of start their entrepreneur entrepreneurial journey right away? So, you know, it's, 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 it depends on the person. Uh, but to sum it up, anytime I am approached uh, by somebody who wants to start a company or has the idea to start a company, I, right. I tell them, "Listen, start yesterday." Yeah. Because the reality is never there's never a right or right time. There's never a perfect time. Right. It's always going to be something that's going to be holding you back. And time is a huge value. If you start early in your life, you can make mistake and come back yeah. more easily from that. Definitely. And you will make mistake. It's part of the learning process. As long as as long as they don't kill you, they make you stronger. So um, so start yesterday if you're really thinking of this okay yeah interesting um and so let's talk about a little bit about the raisin group so walk us through what the raisin group does and what's the long-term vision for the for the company so in in uh at a high level uh 98 of our business is to own and operate uh multifamily and mixed-use properties in mm -hmm. brooklyn mm -hmm. uh, in emerging areas that uh now are starting we are starting to really um um, become uh, pretty high-end for some parts of them. Uh, and like you said, I'm repeating, but uh, Bushwick, Bed-Stuy, yep. Aspect Lefferts Garden. Yep. Um, we have uh, about 40 properties uh, and what we, with what we have on the pipeline, it's going to be 50 uh, in the next few months. Okay. Uh, about 87% of our income is apartment income. Okay. About 13% is commercial income. Uh, so I started the business buying uh, non-performing defaulted debt and uh, yep. You know, I used to buy the balance sheet of Washington Mutual, which was the largest uh, Main Street bank in the U.S. It was, right. the, it was the largest balance sheet, uh, banking balance sheet in America, bigger than Lehman Brothers at the time. It was just mm -hmm. not a Wall Street bank. It was Main Street. They failed on, on, on um, soured uh, real estate loans. Yep. They got purchased by J.P. Morgan Chase at the time, Chase. And, uh, and Chase took them over, auctioned the loans um, and fire sale. Mm -hmm. They had to close in four days and, 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 and buy them all cash. I got my hands on a few. And then eventually, uh, you know, they were they were secured by properties in, in Bushwick. I turned around everything. Mm. Um, uh, then uh, ended up with title uh, for some of them, fixed up what need, needed to be fixed up, and bought more and bought more and bought more. And never really sold uh, much. The exits we've had, most of them have been through refinancing. Right, refinance. And our strategy is pretty long term, uh, medium to long term oriented. And okay. the more we grow, the more it benefits each individual each individual property. So that's what we do. Um, Again, we, we focus on a lot of the middle market and lower end, lower uh, end of the middle market. Mm -hmm. uh, and we try to really uh, aggregate all this portfolio. And I like to think of us as being uh, 
uh, really uh, more in the urbanism business than in the real estate business because we look at things uh, um, from a, a broader perspective, from the perspective of how do we assist the neighborhood growing or right. how do we lead the neighborhood um, uh, in its growth. Uh, and we try to do good things for the real estate, provide uh, nice uh, housing and nice stores for yep. people, and then you know hire local people, create jobs that way for the people that were in this area, and and, and just uh, make everything fit together well and uh, right. harmoniously. Um, so that's what we do. Uh, we we are mostly involved in the ownership of free market apartments, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know we've 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 bought about 20 buildings since covid hit so we really pushed the pedal uh, because we thought there was an opportunity uh, so far it's been rewarding mm -hmm. um obviously the environment's changing very fast but so far it's been rewarding for us uh and the way we're, we're, we will grow is uh you know in the near future we'll be buying more in the areas that we mentioned i think mm -hmm. they're very promising and we have insights that i think also put us in a very good position to pick up assets over there okay and efficiencies when we manage them uh, and then eventually, you know, we'll, we'll, we want to expand in Brooklyn. You know, Brooklyn is a big uh, territory. The great thing about Brooklyn is that it's next to Manhattan. So, right. so it's great in the sense that it's 2.7 million people, and it's the fourth largest city in America if it was a single uh, yeah. on a single uh, standing basis. But it's dwarfed by Manhattan, so it creates it creates major um, uh, inefficiencies in the way people uh, perceive things. And, uh, and and Brooklyn is is uh, growing leaps and bounds, and it's. Uh, it's uh, it has its own culture. It's very distinct. Uh, it's a big international brand now. Mm -hmm. uh, arguably, people know more about Brooklyn uh, outside of the U.S. than than in Manhattan. Definitely, yeah. it's really funny, uh, but it's great. Yeah. So we'll keep growing there uh, in the in the near to medium term. Uh, after that, uh, we'll you know we'll always be happy to expand to New York City, other boroughs if that makes sense, and then maybe nationally and internationally down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, given my background, that would make sense. Um, so that's a long answer, right. but uh, hopefully it touches the points. Yeah, definitely. And and how do you go about setting these goals for yourself? Where where does the inspiration come from? Where does the specific, the quantified numbers come from? You know, um, it's it's interesting because that's these goals have never really changed since I set up the company mm, okay. and decided on the business plan. It might be a little funny, but uh, you know, I came out of business school and... Uh, you know, I, I set up a business plan for the company. It was a 50-year business plan. Right. I thought I was going to do this oh, for wow. 50 okay. years. And I took that vision, yeah. if not more. And uh, so I put that vision into place and uh, and I stuck to it. And I always thought one of the differentiating factors in real estate and maybe in life is is to be able to have a long-term outlook, right. a very long-term outlook. And I actually happen to think that 50 years is a long outlook. But yeah. in, in the greater scheme of things, you have a lot of companies that are more than 50 years old. So yeah. for me, uh, it's really natural to think of this of this this way. And um, so, so, so I thought of it because it's the path of a lot of successful real estate company. One of the companies I look uh, up to the most is Heinz. Heinz Interest right. from uh, Houston, Texas. I read uh, a bunch of their books. I, I, I know some of their people. They they're they're long term minded. They're you know they expanded out of Houston at a good time when Houston was booming, and then they expanded nationally and internationally successfully. It's hard to be successful internationally in real estate. Yeah. It's a local business. And then they really have interesting uh, views on um, how to create returns. They really think that the superior, the, the superior architecture and design and whatnot creates higher financial returns, right. which I also happen to think. Uh, I also happen to think the same way. So uh, many companies like this have, have expanded with the same uh, path, and it's kind of how I set up this vision: being educated and educating myself okay, on yeah. the real estate business back in the, when I was starting. So do you think having like a like a super long-term vision is really the key to real estate, the key to succeeding in real estate? Thinking like thinking about things with a bird eye, bird's eye view, uh, zooming out and kind of 
not focusing on necessarily the day-to-day task, but also focusing on the day-to-day task with a long-term vision. Yes, that's that's the best way to look at it for me. You know, that said, there's many ways to to grow in real estate, you know, in the multifamily, in office and whatnot. And some people are very successful with very short-term holds and, right. and just navigate markets very well. I just can, the only thing I can underline is, and that, that was part of the plan, is our, our success tends to be exponential right. with the years. And that's part of, I believe this because early on we set up a, uh, a long-term mindset mm-hmm. as we discussed and and, and knowing that uh, rates of return become exponen- exponential over time yep. so I was really willing to sacrifice the first few years knowing that most likely there will be um, exponential rewards after that. understood got it um, and what's your relationship with struggle in your life do you avoid it or do you embrace it look up personally I embrace it uh, uh, you know it's you never progress uh, uh, when things are easy, you always yeah. progress. When things uh, when things are challenging, yeah. uh, you know, in 2020 with COVID, you know, the I'm sure you you, you talked to, talk to a lot of New York landlords. So, yeah. you know what happened? The uh, vacancy rate, uh, you know, for us went to 30 uh, percent, and yeah. then the non-pays went to to 30 percent. So, you know, effectively we're 70 percent occupied, and and 30 percent of the 70 were non-pays. Right. So, so we were collecting about 49 percent of rent roll, and at the time, a lot of people were wondering whether the city would recover and it was very challenging for us as well. Thankfully, we turned around quick, quickly. Uh, but you know, this is, this really focuses you. I thought I learned in 2020 uh, a lifetime of uh, of uh, things as as the as the general manager or CEO of a company. Right. Uh, uh, just being in the trenches with my with my team and just you know going with tenancy by tenancy, fixing the problems. Um, you know, same thing when I, when I was starting my company. Uh, I was really fired up about it. I also needed it to work. Yeah. I was in a position I, I really needed that to work for my life to, for my goals to be achieved in general, but mm-hmm. also for my life to be uh, uh, just successful. I was I was concerned I was not going to be a success uh, in my life. Uh, and by any means, I don't think today we've uh, landed anywhere. I think you know we're the, the 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 best of the path is ahead, and most of the most growth is ahead for us right. and for me. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, uh, I embrace struggles. I don't know anybody uh, that's an entrepreneur that's successful who doesn't, and yep. that's how you grow. You never, gr- in my experience, I never, I've never grown uh, more than when times are challenging. And uh, uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, from this, from this, uh, being in the trenches time period that 2020 was, did you um, implement any operational differences with your company? Like so. Th- you could pre- prepare yourself for for something like that happening again. Well, hopefully, it doesn't happen. Right. But if you will deal with it, if it happens, right. uh, yes, we changed a lot of things. Which in in our operations, the people that I was working with, I added staff. Actually, right. when people were, I mean, when it was a downturn, I, I decided to add staff to help me deal with the crisis. You know, you know, came out of, came out of pocket for a while, but it was well worth it. Uh, and and then mostly, you know, after we started having some stability in our in our rent roll, and we're able to to work things out with our banks and mm-hmm. pay uh, uh, pay pay the loans and whatnot quickly. You know, September 2020, I realized it's the time to buy. It's very rare in New York City where you're the only buyer in town. Right. You know, we showed up at buildings uh, with COVID tenants wouldn't open the door. You can visit them, or the owners were you know um, elsewhere in New York City, not hands on, not involved with their buildings, and you know, there was an eviction moratorium, so a lot of tenants wouldn't pay the wouldn't right. pay the rent. Yeah. And you know, we showed up, and it was it was a very unique environment. And from the time it started in 2008, 2009, which was also the financial crisis, very unique. I recognized that this is rare. When this happens in New York right. City, you got to be ready. Right. So we decided to push the pedal uh, uh, to the floor and, and bought a lot of buildings starting in September 2020. 
So in times that are bad, you kind of ramp up your acquisition activities. You kind of buy things while they're cheap. Yes. First of all, we want to stabilize, right. you know, and, and then as soon as we feel confident enough that we're going to be stabilized, right. not stabilized yet, but we're going to be stabilized when we have the vision that things are, are going to be good. Right. Uh, then we push the pedal to the floor Understood. again, Got very, it. very, uh, very quickly and uh, very reactively. Understood. Yeah. And uh, what's what's submarket in New York City do you think has the most potential right now? You know, Bushwick and Best Eye and Prospect right. Leffers Gardens. Uh, that's why I'm involved over there. Right. But uh, look, you know, for you know, these are not cool areas, okay? Where you have coffee shops, you have you know, you have parties, yeah. you have very good restaurants. The chefs from Manhattan that are that are branching out on their own, uh, that are working under big chef and branching out on their right. own, are setting up restaurants. So, so for any cool area in New York, arguably some of the coolest now, uh, we have the lowest price point in in Bushwick. Where our rents are still about uh, I want to say fifty dollars a foot. Right. You know, all across the board, you can have a a two bedroom apartment that's uh, 800 square feet with two bathroom renovated with wash and dryer. Mm -hmm. You can have that for, you know, $3,000 or whatnot. That's the best value in New York City. Right. That's why I think these markets have the most potential. Uh, and look at the big picture in New York City to us, I think, uh, you know, real estate has done so well in Manhattan for so many decades that, uh, that to, at some point, some landlords, not everybody, but some landlords became complacent. Right. Uh, owning uh, six-story walk-up buildings that you never really had to upgrade because you know people would show up at your door anyway. Yeah. There were no other options. Yeah. And then Brooklyn opened up ten years ago, and and a lot of the landlords and the ownership of, of uh, buildings in Brooklyn are are, are dynamic landlords, uh, first generation, sometimes uh, uh, in the business um, that want to make things happen, that want to bring people to Brooklyn. They want right. to they want to create apartments that would be so nice that people visit from Manhattan and they want to move to Brooklyn. Yeah. And that's been very helpful for Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, that's how Brooklyn's gained a lot of uh, market share, so to speak. But um, and 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 we have a lot of potential, uh, uh, a lot of uh, rocks left unturned uh, in terms of uh, buildings that need to turn around and just areas that need right. to, uh, to 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 grow and develop more. So it makes me think that uh, uh, not only we have the best, uh, I think, ownership as a group in the city, but but the the most uh, potential to to keep growing and the lowest price point for Great. tenants. So I think that combination is unique. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, and, and what value add strategies do, does your company employ that are like unconventional or out of the box? Uh, so look, um, you know, we, I mean, we, we, we have a, a, a hopefully a somewhat large tool set, but uh, what we try to do for all our buildings, uh, I, I don't, a lot of people are doing this now, but still I, I do, I do think a majority of, land, of landlords and building owners uh, are not doing this yet, but we try to put, um, individual uh, HVAC units and, right. and yeah. uh, heating and cooling uh, mini split units everywhere in our buildings. Uh, I think it's more luxurious for tenants. Yeah. It fits into what I just mentioned, that people come to Brooklyn for the comfort. Yeah. And then it's great for the environment. Uh, you know, you, you want to lower your carbon footprint. The reality is that we're not subject to all the laws that affect real estate uh, 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 in terms of uh, cutting carbon emissions. Our right. buildings are, don't fall uh, fall under the threshold where you have to implement things, but we like to do that. It's just good in general yeah. uh, for the city. Regardless, it'll probably happen to all buildings at some point, and the tenants like it too. So we, we try to make everybody happy this way. Right. Uh, so we do that. Then we use technology in our in our portfolio uh, a lot. We 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 lease sometimes with a company that does a lot of self touring. You know, they they give you an app. It's called uh, Block A. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you might you might know them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we you know they, they, we we've used them. Uh, a bunch they you know you're a tenant you want to show up on a sunday morning and you like the intersection of uh, marcy and hancock in yeah. Bed-Stuy, which is a beautiful intersection 
or you show up on your own, no need to call a broker, make an appointment, whatnot. That's great, yeah. No need to interact with anybody. You show up, you open your phone, you see right away on the phone all the apartments that are available at this intersection and around. And you know, you click on what you want to visit. Yep. It spits out a QR code or, 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 or um, something that allows you to come to the building, go to the door, there's a device on the door, and you know you you, you open it on your own, you tour right. on your own, you, if you like it, you press a button, you file an application on your own, goes into your bank account directly and whatnot. It's it's very efficient. 100%. Uh, so we try to be inno innovative in that sense. And I think a lot of Brooklyn landlords are trying to be innovative, innovative again right. because we have to we have to bring the market to us. We have to make it attractive for people to come and live in Brooklyn. Definitely, yeah, 100%. And um, what are some el elements of a deal, uh, of a potential deal that you would consider beyond the numbers? You know, a lot is beyond the numbers. Actually, many times the most important is behind the beyond numbers, the numbers, you know. Yeah. And real estate, for, for whatever that's worth, it's still a location, location, location yeah. business. Yeah. It is what it is. So you want to look at uh, where you're located with regards to transportation, with regards to jobs in a city, uh, how the block looks. Uh, what the potential uh, of your building is, how it looks inside, how it looks outside, and then macroeconomically, what's going on in, in the city? Mm -hmm. Are jobs being created or not? Uh, what's really going on? Like, let's say in Brooklyn, what's really going on in Brooklyn where people have stayed during COVID, you know? It's not the, it's not the big picture, you know, coastal markets are crumbling, people are leaving. Yeah. It's not like that in Brooklyn. People have stayed because, again, their apartments are big, they have outdoor space. So, you know, you want to understand all these things. And then ideally put that into numbers after the after the right. understanding is done, in my opinion. Okay, yeah. So understand the big picture first, and then you kind of focus more on the nitty-gritty of the numbers. Correct. Look, look, the numbers for us are a way to check that that our vision right. is correct and that we're going to make the money that we that, it's possible. that we that we think we're going to make. And uh, right. it, it's, a, it's a check. It's very important, and we're very diligent about our models and whatnot. But it's not everything. Uh, but, it, it, you know, the big picture is the big picture. Right. And it's not it's not quantifiable. Yeah. Uh, it's, you, you can't put... Uh, in numbers uh, how a block looks like yeah 100 percent. yeah um and who were your role models and people you looked up to when you were coming up in the industry you mentioned heinz were there any others that kind of stood out to you uh well listen definitely jerry heinz i you know i studied what he's done with his career and, and how he behaved and handled yeah. himself it looks very interesting he passed away actually pretty recently yeah, unfortunately um you know I've, I've been lucky to uh rub shoulders with a lot of uh people uh uh, there's a gentleman that I got to know over time, Francis Greenberger, who runs Time Equities. Uh, he's a true entrepreneur. I look right. up to him. He's a high-class uh, individual. Um, uh, many times, in terms of uh, in terms of larger, uh, uh, or I mean, just in terms of companies you read about in the press, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm thinking you get a lot of people that make very uh, very interesting um, uh, things. I, I always thought Goldman Sachs actually as a rusted player. Uh, except for a couple of transactions out west, uh, generally speaking, have done interesting things yeah. uh, internationally. Definitely. Uh, and they're from here, they're from New York. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that. Okay, interesting. And uh, what's your perspective on networking? So what can a young professional offer you to make you want to help them or hire them? You know, uh, listen, people that reach out to us because of our uh, reputation or because they've seen what we do or want to understand more, I, I always always appreciate it you know it's it's a compliment uh, uh on our activities uh, as a company uh so i you know I, as much as possible i try to make myself available um so your question is what advice on networking yeah. I would, listen reach out to people especially if you have a com common connection even if you don't you never know how people behave and right. you know uh networking is absolutely important absolutely important in every business in every path of life especially real estate being local and being it's it's a people business as much yeah. as you hear that it's you know being uh, automatized or being uh, 
you know, uh, tech is coming in. It's, it's a people business. Uh, it is what it is. And um, over time, you networking really allows you, first of all, keep in touch with the people you yeah. network with. And over time, it allows you to develop uh, business real uh, unique insights on uh, the personalities, why people do things one way while others do do it a certain way. It's uh, Networking is key and uh, you cannot do without. Right. 100%. Um, and what real estate asset classes or property types do you see potential for? Look, multifamily, but okay. uh, we're not the only ones. I mean, the whole country is potential multifamily given right. uh, what's happened with COVID. Uh, urban multifamily. Okay. On the coast, I happen to think the coastal markets are the best. Now we're contrarians. You know, okay. I like to, to come in when, when things are out of favor. Okay. Uh, historically, that's how I've done the best. Um, uh, so, you know, obviously that one thing that's flying under the radar, so to speak, is that neighborhood retail uh, in Brooklyn or generally actually in New York City in residential neighborhoods mm -hmm. or other parts of the country, neighborhood retail has done well. And retail in general, you know, the, the, the headline is that Amazon has killed all yeah. retail businesses. The reality is, you know, retail leasing is very strong now after COVID. Uh, people uh, are eager to go back to, to stores, local stores. Uh, bigger stores, even in the suburbs, they're eager to go back to malls. Um, you know, the, the, the country's been over-retailed and uh, over-built for malls for a while, but for specific assets, you know, they're, they're still very strong uh, and successful. We've uh, actually purchased a lot of retail units um, mm. since COVID uh, in the boroughs in Brooklyn because uh, we saw our stores and our retailers do extremely well with mm -hmm. COVID uh, and therefore want to open a second and third location and, and and especially with the government's uh, assistance, uh, SBA and whatnot, yeah. all the programs, you know, it helped a lot of would-be entrepreneurs get the start. Right. Uh, so that's for this part. Uh, you know, warehouses obviously uh, seem to have ways to go. We, we, we've tried to purchase a few. We never really been, uh, we never really came close to any, but uh, uh, especially warehouses, I think, uh, next to urban hubs that are not too far from jobs. So it's, it's in New York City, it would be by Broadway Junction, by... In some parts of Flatbush, right. Prospect Lefferts Gardens, uh, some areas where you can find you know, some parts of Ridgewood, um, large footprint warehouses where you have an opportunity down the road to maybe rezone or build something new on top of it. You know, I think there'll be a push for the at some point, but in either the city official general population where you know we're, we're still having a lot of needs for housing in general and affordable housing in particular. Yeah, of course. So uh, you know, you, you, if you if you lock in an interesting footprint next to tra transportation hubs. I think that's interesting. Okay, yeah. Uh, what do you What do you think is the most difficult real estate asset class to master? Look, I only have experience with multifamily right. mixed-use buildings, so so really, uh, it's difficult enough. It's not an easy business. Right. It's difficult enough. The what's always underrated is the property management uh, and the people who do that. I give them a lot of credit. It's a mm -hmm. very difficult uh, job. Um, so I cannot speak about all asset classes. Right. I can speak to about New York City real estate is also. I mean, New York City real estate in general is for specialists. You yeah. have a lot of uh, compliance regulation uh, to um, uh, to handle. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a real uh, art to be able to manage these buildings well. Okay. Uh, you said in an interview with uh, Solar Report um, that you steer away from rent-stabilized units. Do you see the laws reversing in the near future? And if so, how would you capitalize on this? You, you did great research. <laughs> uh, we, we have stayed away in, in, in mostly uh, from these units. For the right opportunities, I'm not against uh, buying right. some of these units. It's challenging right now. You have expenses that for some are doubling or more. 
you know, heating cost uh, in the past, in the recent past, uh, insurance costs, things of that nature. Um, and your rents are, you know, going up, uh, I think it's three and a quarter percent or, uh, you know, for one year leases. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the maximum you've had in the past couple of years. And you had three years of zero increases. So you really get squeezed as an owner. So they're, they're tough products to get involved with until unless they're very, very cheap and you really um, see potential to upgrade them. And, uh, and you know, for us, we would want to run them the right way. We want we want to provide everybody the right um, service and housing right. and whatnot. Um, so, so, so they're challenging. To the point, yes, that I think the laws will have to change because they're 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 no good for anybody. Yeah. For me, I think what happened in 2019 when the rent laws uh, became uh, so much stricter with the HSTPA and whatnot is a miscarriage of um, uh, politics to some degree. Uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction to what's going yeah. on, uh, arguably in the White House. Um, and generally speaking, uh, this has to change. This has to involve. There 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 are a lot of efforts uh, being done about this. So far, not with great success but eventually you can feel the tone and the politics are changing in the city in the state of new york and then these laws are going to be in front of the supreme court and the supreme court only takes uh, i think it's uh 0.01 of the cases yeah. they're shown and uh you know they have different ideas than the legislators of the state of new york about uh, property rights so we'll, we'll see what happens uh, okay and as far as uh rising interest rates how do you think that's going to affect commercial real estate in the next five to ten years well first of all it's already affected commercial real estate yeah. dramatically yeah. and uh, it's uh, you know it's the first time in 40 years the rates are going up so high yeah. so quickly uh, so you know we can feel i think everybody in real estate feels a tremendous slowdown since march since yeah. the first spike and every basically 3 months you've had a huge spike uh, since the summer it's even more uh, dramatic uh, so you know we're we're definitely experiencing a slowdown the prices and whatnot are holding up right now in new york city real estate for how long we don't know it's just yeah. the volume of transaction is has, has you know been uh, decreased by a lot uh I'm, I'm very positive on the market you know generally speaking i think we're in the beginning of a 10-year uh, cycle it's, it's cyclical business I, th I see i see you know lack of supply being the actually the main driver of things in the city more okay. so than rates but yeah. but rates will slow things down a lot for commercial real estate you know I, We'll see what the Fed does. I, you know, I, I think it's a, the the rates have already increased uh, more than they should have, um, and the Fed is looking at the job numbers as yeah. opposed to other numbers, uh, which is fine. That's how they do things, and you know, for us, we'll, we'll handle any environment and and play conservative regardless. But uh, damage has been done. I think it's it's going to be a couple months or a couple weeks before that you know translates into uh, headlines and things that are uh, that make people uh, react differently in terms of. Uh, hikes in interest rates and whatnot, but it's, you know, we're probably headed, we're not headed for a party. Let's, right, let's yeah. put it like this. And five to 10 years is a long timeline. Anything can happen. The rates are, in my view, not going back to, uh, you know, borrowing at two and a half percent for multifamily properties, yeah. but maybe you'll borrow at 4% and, and, and at that level, it's a somewhat normal environment. Understood. Um, and how does creativity play a role in real estate? Can you think back to a time where you chose to think differently and came up with a out of out of the box solutions to a problem. Look, it's very important. It's very important uh, in real estate and in every uh, again in every aspect of life. But uh, it's very important because uh, you you will deal uh, with the very unexpected uh, things. You know, right. you will deal with uh, you know uh, you know. Let's say one time, uh, you know, we, we used to own a building and we had a tenant that was a retired plumber and used to have a habit of going into the basement himself to fix a boiler when he thought he was his apartment was all cold. Okay. And this gentleman uh, was a charismatic guy, put it like this, and uh, 
and same thing we you know we had we, we you know this is not stuff that you you prepare uh you you get prepared to deal with when you go to business school right. or 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 a mass red program for that matter um but uh you know you 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 get creative you 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 know you talk to the person try to win them over try to you know try to some degree um get them to side with you on not doing that right. or you know that's a particular example but uh you have to be creative yeah 100% yeah and um why do you think personal branding as a real estate entrepreneur is important and how have you generated business by putting yourself in the public eye so you know i i I'm, i do am pretty public about what we do i also think it's a good thing uh i write a lot for the uh, i guess uh local and uh domestic and sometimes international uh, yep. press or think tanks as as you mentioned uh, look i think it's good for the real estate industry to hopefully have a balanced voice you know if i can provide that that would be good but you know a common sense voice uh from an outsider i'm not you know i wasn't born in this country i wasn't born in the city right. i embraced it i'm very invested in the city i love new york city uh and 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 i i think the more voices actually you have that bring a reasonable mindset to the conversation um uh, the better it is for everybody uh so for that particular reason i i like to to be vocal about this um in terms of 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 branding so to speak uh look i'm a big promoter and believer in brooklyn you know it's a great environment for us it's uh you know half the people if not more in brooklyn uh are not born in this country yeah. it's uh and it it's it's bred so many uh, talented people it's bred such uh um enthusiasm and creativity and and so many things uh in every walks of uh life that uh you know i, I just feel very strongly about yeah. it and you know you think of brooklyn and brooklyn real estate you don't, you don't really have a public face or nobody brooklyn in general nobody comes to mind yeah um so if we can come to mind in terms of the real estate industry we'd be yeah. happy uh we're proud of what we do. We own uh, historic buildings we've uh, rehabbed, and we try to do the right thing uh, for local communities. So I'm, I'm you know, I'd, I'd be happy to 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 brand myself as somebody that does that. That's not That's a great. not a problem for me. Yeah. Uh, and then generally speaking, in terms of uh, business, I think you know, in this day and age, investors the first thing they do is Google you. I think it's fair for them to have some sense of me online, definitely, uh, or you know, through research like you did. That's uh, that's fair for them. Okay. So that's why I do it too. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? You know, I try to be the stupidest guy in the room every time I can. Uh, so I, I really think, you know, I learn most from the people that I surround myself with. Right. Because I interact them, with them the most. Yeah. But uh, listen, I try to grasp knowledge or information anywhere I can. It's always been my mindset. Uh, I, I couldn't pinpoint to one person in particular that I learned the most from but mm -hmm. uh, today. But, uh, you know, I try to get... Uh, uh, again, I'm very hands-on and, and involved in our portfolio yep. and the people that run it and assist me running the company, they provide tremendous insights. They're all very smart and have different expertise and domain of, uh, of uh, knowledge. Yep. Um, you know, then general uh, trade publication, people in the business, at conferences, you know, talking to people. And again, you know, sound bikes or just uh, even body language sometimes tells something about right. somebody that's very insightful uh, for me to know uh, in terms of uh, progressing in business. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Okay. And what, what drives you nowadays? Is it money, um, personal achievement, family, philanthropy? And when would you say you've succeeded? So look, every, every time I've been driven by money, it didn't end well. Right. So, uh, so that's uh, been off the table for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, to proceed by elimination, uh, philanthropy is a great thing. You know, I've, 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 I've always thought it's important to give back. Uh, in my life, I was involved at some point uh, 
I was a volunteer professor in uh, in uh, mental health uh, okay. care facilities and Great. and with people that were uh, low income uh, people and homeless people in the city. Uh, I've you know I was involved with um, an endeavor to provide the uh, uh, free meals to people that were trapped during the beginning of COVID uh, in the boroughs and the housing projects and things like that. Uh, and in the past, I, uh, I always thought it was important to give back, uh, and I try to do more now with the. Uh, different things. Uh, I'm somewhat involved in the French American world and the mm -hmm. cultural world a little bit, um, and I, I want to grow that in the future. Uh, whether it's something that drives me, I think it's definitely a, a, a normal thing to do. Not even nice normal. I, you know, a, a driver. It's definitely a, a driver for me to 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 be as successful as I can. Um, you know, that said, I think the challenge and the opportunity to do good things for New York City, the opportunity to to bring our touch, you know, especially my touch as a European-born person, uh, making European-style right. apartments to some degree, where where I can try, you know, my best to to have them design well, so that people are happier and stay longer, and feel that they're really getting value for money, course, yeah. not the classical New York uh, um, uh, cliche where somebody moves in here from the Midwest and you know lives in a very expensive yeah. apartment that has zero service and yeah. no heat. You know, we 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 really try to do well. For the city and uh, uh, that drives me the most being uh, I think of value to the place that's uh, welcomed me with open arms and it's very humbling and providing opportunities to others and, and the opportunity to 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 grow people around me uh, that's very very uh, valuable for me that's awesome and I have my last question to wrap it up what advice would you give your 22 year old self about life business and relationships so uh, you know Definitely don't worry about money. If you work hard and you're smart, right. it'll be a byproduct. It's always a byproduct of anything. Uh, definitely take a long-term vision early on right. uh, and go one direction and stick with it day right. in, day out. Great. Amazing. Remy, thank you so much for, for this. Thank you for this having me. This has been very valuable, I'm sure, for a lot of young professionals watching this, and they can apply it to their career moving forward. Okay. Thanks thank so much. Thank you for having me again. Great.